Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. (laughs) Good morning, good evening, good night, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. Today, I'm with my business partner and friend, Kimon Fontakidis, and our special guest, Jack Lancaster, who's... uh, search fund founder and CEO of a surgical instruments company. But Jack, why don't you introduce yourself in the way you would if you, if you were directly controlling the dialogue rather than let me do it? Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Really looking forward to having a nice, fun chat about two of my favorite topics. Um, so as you said, Jack Lancaster, I am now CEO of Evolution Surgical, which is an Australian medical technology company focused on designing, manufacturing, and distributing at scale um, medical devices with applications focused on the spine and broader sort of neuro, neurosurgical and orthopedic um, applications. Um, we are a 10-year-old company um, based in Australia. I took over the business two years ago to sort of correct you on semantics. It wasn't a traditional search fund. It was sort of a variety of search fund, which um, people in the market call entrepreneurship through acquisition. So there wasn't that sort of search fund model, which is sort of very um, tightly categorized out of places like Harvard and Stanford, but um, similar sort of model, which was um, a young guy like myself, young-ish, post-MBA, post I'd sort of spent 10 years in management consulting with a focus on healthcare, um, wanted to do something different, wanted to take over a company that um, I was at a point in my career where I was sick of advising people and wanted to go and create something and build something for myself. Um, I'd never been much of an ideas person, but someone who was quite good at spotting an opportunity when it came along. And in Australia, there was an opportunity with a huge amount of um, sort of lower mid-cap companies that didn't have great succession plans. Um, so I went out into the market and said, let's try and buy one of these. Um, didn't have any money um, or not a huge amount of money. So let's find a great company. Let's find people who want to back us. And then hopefully I can put two and two together and find something great and grow it. And here we are a couple of years later and so far so good. Yeah, well, congratulations. I don't, I don't Kimon, do you want to dive in with any questions you've got or should I? Yeah, I already have a couple of things that popped to my mind. But uh, well, first of all, I've actually had the calls with people such as yourself, like whatever that people such as yourself who were uh, stay, I would call them staked, whatever they had, like some, uh, they had some, uh, they had, they had some people with money, uh, whether they're uh, angels or uh, funds or people behind them. And they were basically, but I was like, and I was sort of, and, and, and this is, I don't want to say anything like it's going to sound offensive, but I was sort of made fun. I was like, oh, so you're basically, cause like I would have the conversation with them. They wanted to buy my, my company. And I'd be like, so basically you're looking for a job. Basically, you're looking for a job. Like you're basically looking for basically because that's like the way. Like I, I don't like my like. It, but anyway, I think that's. Like, I've always thought it was like a super cool thing, and I, I, I'm very interested in because basically what you're doing is you're you're saying look, I'd like to be the CEO of a company. I'm going to find the company. I can do it. I've got people that are that believe in me, and they want to invest in me because I think really isn't that more. You know, obviously the opportunity has to be good. It has to fit certain parameters. But the, I, I, I have to believe that the fundamental part is you, right? I mean, they're investing in. You're whoever your investors are, believe in you, and they, I think you're the person to do it. And so, yeah. How, how, so, how does that actually work? Because, like, did you have to go through a lot of them? I mean, because, like, because my initial thing was like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you definitely do need to believe in the entrepreneur. Um, so, from the investor's point of view, um, there's two things that you truly need to believe in, or maybe two and a half, three things. One is the business. The sort of second half thing is not only what the business is, but what it can be. And then the third is obviously the person that is going in and is going to lead the company. Um, how does it work? Do you do the work? Like, is it is it your, it's basically your, like you do the work, right? And, uh, I'm not talking about now that you're the CEO. I mean, like the point where, like to get to this point, you actually have this opportunity. You're like out there searching for companies and then you're doing the pitching and all the pitching and saying like, this is a really good investment. This is why this is really good. This, this is where we can take this. And then like, maybe you can just talk us through, because I think this is a really interesting, I'm really happy that we have you and this, because we haven't had this before. I think this is a really interesting thing to cover actually, because this, there's a whole world out here of there are people that are like, hey, I, I want to, I can run a company. I just need to find investors and I need to find, so maybe you can just 
talk us through that process because I think it's really I think it's really interesting actually. Sure. So I'm happy to talk you through um, how the process generally works and how I intended it to work, and then how. And I think it all comes down to the premise and the point that you were sort of making, which is there's a lot of people out there um, who think that they can run a business and think that they can be CEO. But if you work through that sort of corporate hierarchy and corporate ladder, um, no one's going to give it to you. Um, so if you really back yourself and you're willing to take a chance, you've got to go out and take it. And essentially, that's what the entrepreneurship through acquisition model is, um, particularly for people from professional services or sort of what I would call cushy jobs, which is what I had. <laughs> Um, so management consultant by background, I'm not sure a lot of people would call it cushy, but comfortable, right? Like well-paid, there's a clear yeah. progression. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me um, to sort of reach the top of that greasy corporate ladder um, was a long way. So I went out into the market in very early 2020 and I had a plan to do two things over what I was hoping would be an 18 month period. Maybe it goes into two years, but I was sort of targeting 18 months, which was to build up a pipeline of potential acquisition targets sort of in and around um, the size and scope and scale and sort of look and feel of the company that I wanted and build a book of investors at the same time who at that point in time, I could go back to them and say, you know, that sort of shape of business that I said I was going to buy. Well, I found it. Do you want to back me? And so like, you have to choose, like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you, you like going into it, you said like, I'm going to like, so you've gone into like a good sector from my perspective, a good growth sector. So like the, you probably said, look, I want to go into like, you, I don't know, what did you have one? Did you say for sure? I want to go into sort of like the healthcare um, life science space, or was it like, I'll, I want to go into life science. I want, like, were there like several of these like verticals that you, you were, you were exploring and then and then you're bringing yeah. opportunities from that? So or? the difference between a search fund, which is where you take people's money up front to live off and do this whole process for yeah. two years. Um, when you do that and you take people's money, you make a commitment to do certain things. Um, I didn't do that. So I was literally just an unemployed guy right. looking for a company to buy. Um, yeah. So I, I did impose a self, sort of self-imposed mandate on myself. But at the end of the day, I was just an unemployed guy looking for a company to buy. Um, but that said, my background had been health and medical. Um, okay. And as a first-time CEO, it does help to have some degree of credibility in the industry that you're going into. So I said, I'm going to focus on some business with some exposure to health and medical, unless something amazing comes and slaps me in the face and lands in my lap. Um, and to me, that could have been as broad as a um, catering company that supplied hospitals. That okay. Sort of wow. How, how okay. broadly, I was willing to sort of extend that mandate okay. on myself. Some some sort of exposure to healthcare. Um, there was one key nugget that I dropped in there that you may not have picked up on, which is um, I set out on this journey in early 2020, um, and actually something pretty significant happened in the world about a week later. Um, yeah, I was gonna. I was. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did, I did uh, recognize that. I thought that would end up being part of. Well, I was actually thinking when you said it. I thought opportunity. I thought maybe he got something. Maybe so. Maybe maybe you know. Maybe this was a good time. You know, if you if you're going into that because you didn't have because it was bad if you had something, but it was good if you didn't have anything. Actually, it was better. So, in my I opinion. mean, it was it was a bit of both. Certainly, my sentiment. A week or a month after leaving my fairly comfortable job um, was, oh, wow, isn't this the worst time in the world for a rookie to be going out into the market and trying to raise capital for the first time ever? Um, number one. Number two, at that point in time, one of the first things that happened is everybody who had investment uh, exposed <laughs> investments lost about 30% of their wealth like that. Um, yeah. So that second thing I was trying to do over 18 months, which was raise a book of investors, became a lot harder. Um, yes. And there was an expectation of people who had exposure to public markets, which most high net worths and institutional investors do, is that if public markets are down by 30%, private markets should be down by 30%. And if you're sort of the traditional seller in this model, which is a retirement age, I've been running this thing for 30 years, um, you're not going to take a 30% haircut. You're just going to say, no, I'll ride this out. Like I've ridden out the last five things. Yeah. And, and that put me in quite a predicament, which was, oh, wow, it's a, it's a really hard time for me to 
find a good company, get value for it and have people that will back me. Um, so on the, flip, on the flip side though, right. Are, are like what I've understood about these, these deals or this, this, this space, like in just, I've actually listened to some, I think some podcasts about it as well, but so it's like, you're looking for exactly, as you said, you're like, you're looking for the retired, like the retiring, potentially retired uh, business owner. But then also it was like, I, one of the sort of like strong arguments for doing it was like, you can get a good, like you can get a good multiple because these are relatively smaller business. Now I, I assume these are the, uh, like a smaller business. And so like, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to end up paying like three or four X, which is something you can really then turn a multiple on. Um, so I have to imagine that that part of it didn't, I mean, like, you know, you still were looking at relatively attractive valuations i assume even you know you know i mean you you weren't asking i, I guess you weren't asking for the di- what you're saying is they weren't going to give you discounts on top of an already pretty good valuation yeah exactly you're probably going to get exactly basically so um so is that, I mean, is that, on top yeah. of which everything just sort of froze up um the whole market froze up particularly in healthcare which was um one of the most directly impacted sectors because this was a health um triggered um macro event so um, what I ended up doing was saying, through no fault of my own, I've made a really bad decision. Um, I'm going to sort of just ride this out for six or 12 months and look for some part-time consulting work, um, like contracting work. But of course, no one was hiring sort of temp right. staff. Um, so I said, look, I'll keep on trying to do what I'm doing, but I'm just going to take it easy for a month because I've been working pretty hard and let's just take stock and do this. And, and the way it actually happened is I was down having coffee with my dad one morning and there was a guy at the next table who I've known forever, but not well. And he said, oh, Jack, how are you going? I haven't seen you in ages. What are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm actually got a bit of a pickle. I just left my um, job and I'm looking for a medical company that um, I want to take over and buy and run. And he said, you know what, Jack, I know someone who's trying to sell one. Oh, my God. That was how it happened. So in the traditional model, and this is why I say I will tell you through how I was planning to do it, how it normally happens and how I did it. In the traditional model, there's a lot of data out there that says most people who end up buying one company outreach to sort of between 500 and 1,000 and they run this sort of filtration model. Wow, wow. I spoke to two and only one more than once. Um, I spent essentially seven months trying to close this deal. Um, and that's that's the story of my and you did, though. acquisition. Yeah. yeah. And, and, apart, and we apart, did. apart from the lesson of it being important to get lucky, you did you did say that you told your dad's friend that you're a bit, a bit of a pickle. And sometimes entrepreneurs and particularly people who are sort of focused on success don't want to share what's going badly. And if you'd kept that to yourself, they wouldn't you maybe never would have shared that story. And the getting the word out about what you're looking for at some level means showing some vulnerability and you know I, I, it come, comes, comes back to the idea that sometimes you make your own luck just by getting out there and telling people what you want now, mm. i would say i would even go a step further I, i'd say that uh, jack did more before it's a history because for some reason this guy wanted to know how jack was doing so like he'd heard something like there or either there's a real some kind of a relationship that you'd done you the track record of being a decent person probably help probably. somehow because yeah because uh you know and obviously you had the conversation you were ready to open up and and talk but also so like yeah it's all it's everything basically because you don't because it yeah it does sound extremely lucky but the fact is this guy believed in jack like straight away knew jack and said yeah I'll, i'm ready to vouch for jack and give jack this opportunity well, and whilst so. that's certainly not something that i that particular instance is not something that i have banked on happening in sort right. of my subjective calculations of do i take this risk um i did know that i had a, a, a network of people here in sydney um and i had sort of a short list of people that i was going to contact and reach out to this guy was not on the list because i didn't know him particularly well although over time i probably would have realized to reach out to him because he's a fairly well-connected guy but um, sort of knowing that that network existed did play into my decision of do I take this leap of faith mm. and can, um, before we talk about what you're doing now and, and the future can you <clears throat> tell us a bit about 
what you were expecting to do if you roll it back sort of I don't know to when you were a teenager or even younger did you imagine that one day you're going to have a business and, and would your friends from high school or primary school be really astonished if they listened to this and this is what you're doing that you were you were more like a corporate high flyer obviously you're kind of high flyerish type guy judging by your cv so they probably thought well he's going to be but maybe I'm wrong but can you can you just talk about the context and did you expect to be an entrepreneur or did it come to you later in life um, so a couple of things. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect. Um, I love drawing stuff. And um, that's what I thought I was going to do until I was about 10 years old. Um, and then I think probably most of my friends that have known me um, throughout my teenage years would have said, yes, Jack's going to be one of those corporate dudes. I've got one of my very close friends who was actually MC at my wedding very recently, who always used to tease me that I was going to be on the cover of Time magazine one day. Um, so probably the short answer to your question is yes. Um, where that comes from, and this is something I've sort of reflected on um, a little bit, is um, had sort of a different childhood to a lot of people. My parents were a lot older when they had me. Um, so my dad was in his mid-50s by the time he had me, and he'd sort of already had quite a successful career. So by the time I grew up and sort of or, or throughout childhood and saw the way that he was working, he was much more at that hands-off level and sort of doing deals here and there, but he didn't ever really have a nine-to-five job. And that sort of, to me, always set in my mind of, oh, that's, um, that's a pretty nice way of working. Um, I never saw that sort of 30 years of grunting and doing the real hard work that everyone does to get to that point. I just sort of saw... Um, someone whose professional careers was um, doing a deal once or twice a year and um, traveling around and having a nice time in the meantime. So I think that entrepreneurial flair, probably, whether I knew it or not, was embedded um, in my mind at that point. And um, this is actually my second company. My first one, um, Richard, I think I mentioned to you the other day, was a very, very brief and very accidental foray into mobile payments, which, again, if this was an accident, that was even more accidental. <clears throat> Um, but I think, yes, I've always been attracted to the idea of doing something for myself, being a bit of an entrepreneur and um, spotting an opportunity when it comes along and really making a good go of it. So you've, you've merged the idea of being a sort of corporate guy and being an entrepreneur in a way that normally a lot of people would just distinguish. But so your dad owned his own business. He wasn't working for someone else. That's right. OK. OK. And, and what about... Um... What about your, did you have any role models other than your dad? Or you said it was a different childhood. I think you told me in the cafe, but maybe you can share with our listeners, like you weren't anchored in one place, were you particularly? No, I wasn't. Um, I often referred to my parents as corporate gypsies. So every six months we would move, um, often between Australia and the UK, um, which are the two places I really think of as home. But there are a few other places um, as well. And I think that was a combination of, um, chasing business opportunities as well as chasing a pretty nice lifestyle. Um, and to me, that sort of seemed normal until you take a step back at this point of life and you realize how abnormal that is. Um, but I think sort of it exposed me to a lot. And um, at an early age, I had a very uh, a wide breadth of exposure as opposed to a great depth living in any one place like a lot of um, normal children do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think that probably in some way or another all adds to the tapestry of how we've ended up where we are, where I have. Interesting. Keeman, do you want to, is, I feel like I've been asking a lot of questions. Do you want to dive in? No, I'm actually reflecting on the social experiment that I'm currently doing because I have two kids, I have four kids, uh, biological kids, and two of them were watched the grind. And I'm older now. I'm like your, I'm like your dad now. Like, and I have the second two and they're watching the, 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 the nicer <laughs> what you're describing <laughs> yeah well exactly so it'll be interesting how to see gonna, how this is gonna like uh like how is this gonna impact like how does it like it'll be curious to you know wait like 20 30 years and and see how it, it impacts both sets like are they are they are they similar or different no because i think it's really interesting um that that does rub off. Of course, that rubs off on you. Of course, you realize. I, I don't think about it. It's funny that what you said. It made, started to make me think about myself. But you don't think about how it's impacting your kids. You know what I mean? Like this kind of lifestyle, this kind of thing that you're doing. You're trying to have a good life and whatever. But actually, it's impacting like you're there as a kid and saying, "Wow, 
This is the way I want to live. Like this is the uh, way I or just live. what your perception of normality is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. It's it's really it's really it's really interesting that that can impact. Uh, and you know, Richard, you actually you have the same thing. Well, well, well I, I was I, I was I was going to say that for me, uh, sometimes you see your parents, you think I want to be like them, or I've seen my parents, and I thought, <laughs> I, despite how how wonderful they were in many ways, I did not want to be like them because I had this sort of long, deep seat, and I was very unself aware as a kid, but sense of injustice. And they were super smart, very nice people, and they were struggling financially with my dad paying private school fees in the UK as a academic and you know he was one of the smartest people in oxford university however he was really struggling i thought I, this is not fair i'm not as smart as i, my dad, I don't know i don't want to be i don't want to have this sort of constant you know the mood the mood music of my childhood was my parents worrying about money and, and, and particularly when we weren't around so we'd hear them talking about it when we weren't in the room but of course we could hear did you have brothers and sisters by the way and are they the same as you or were you the only child from this late in life decision i have a sister who well she's biologically a half sister um but super close um she's quite a bit older um from a different mother and she lives in new york so um very close, all things being considered, but with the age gap and the geographical different job, but different upbringing is what you're saying. Okay. Different, so, whatever so, different upbringing. So, Keeman, you need to introduce your kids when they're a bit older to to Jacks, and they can compare notes about this because that's <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I, I'm sure your kids would love that. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I have a question. Well, I don't, I don't want to like the other thing that like I want to talk about. But I don't know if this well, so I started talking, so we'll talk about it. Um, is Australia in general. So like you're chosen to do like so is this business, let's talk a little bit about this business. Is this business Australia? Because I think I, I think <clears throat> I've done some business with Australia and just the the and, and even just this call, I mean, like Richard is now happens to be in Australia, but like we have a massive time difference. Like I it's morning for me, it's evening for you. So I, I just think doing business. From Australia internationally has to be a hard thing to do. So I don't know to what extent your business is like, I'm going to focus on the Australian market or are you, do you have plan? Like maybe let's talk a little bit about, maybe let's use that as a segue and let's just, sure. maybe you can talk a bit about your business actually. Um, so to answer the question on sort of geographies and growth and that sort of thing, I had always thought that this business, Evolution Surgical, has three growth horizons that we can, we can think of. The first is um, the state that Sydney is in is called New South Wales for the international listeners. Um, the first growth horizon was dominance in New South Wales. Um, and at the point I took over the business, we were a top three player in New okay. South Wales. And that's, that's pretty strong considering um, that our competition, sort of the other five or six in the top five or six are all multi-billion dollar international, generally American companies. So top three, um, that's sort of first growth horizon achieved. Um, the second natural growth horizon is Australian dominance. Um, and that requires a whole different set of infrastructure and growth. And you're not a local shop anymore. You're now a national corporate organization. Um, and that did not exist when I took on the business. And that's the growth horizon we're focusing okay. on now. And then clearly the third growth horizon um, is taking this product and this model and taking it international. How, how big... Uh, to whatever to whatever you want to share, I don't know what you want to share or what metrics you have in any way you want to describe it, but it's more just a question trying to understand like how uh, I'm just going to ask directly and then you can explain share it however you want. So like how big is the the the, the, the possible market um, in your in your region, uh, the, the the region you're currently in that you're number three in, and then how much bigger is the the market if you get all of Australia? And then is that is that big enough? Or, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know how big, because like Australia's a big country, like it's maybe it's a big enough, maybe that's a big enough market. You know, uh, I don't know how far you want to, but, but can you give us a sense of how big the scale of the company, how big it would be, how big it is now, how big it would have to be to be one of the dominant ones in Australia? And then. Yeah, so I mean, let me answer a slightly different question, which I think will give you the answer that yeah. you're after. Is our nearest <laughs> competitor here in Australia um, is a company that was founded out of a private equity firm or private equity incubated founder um, yeah. about 15 years yeah. ago. Um, they don't manufacture, they're just a distributor. Um, and they recently were just traded for $1.5 <coughs> billion. And they're, sorry, and they're only in Australia, you said? They, they, or 90%, they, they do a little bit of stuff internationally, but okay, the right. so is Australian to me, so that, company. See, this is what I thought. 
about Australia in a lot of ways is that the market is really good. Like the local market is good enough that you don't actually need to, that's, it's like a self-sustaining, it's self-sustaining basically. So you actually don't need to like, okay, if you want to go global, you can, but you can like be hugely massively successful just in your local, yeah. just in I mean, local market. I mean, if we were to receive a valuation in the billions of dollars, we'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's clearly been proven of a company with um, a business model that, I mean, I think they've done extraordinarily well and in many ways um, they're a company to be respected, but um, the market generally views distributors at a lower valuation than manufacturers. Sure, sure. Um, and they've done that um, just pretty much just focusing on Australia as a distributor in our segment. So... Um, yes, there's plenty of space to plenty of growth to go after. And, and, and Jeff, maybe maybe in a minute or two you could explain what the company does because I think we left that yeah. out and people might be getting yes, curious. Yes, it's now. important details, right? So um, we we make um, medical devices for the spine, predominantly for spinal fusion. Um, so if you've got um, the worst sort of so the the least acute spine operation you can have is you just cut out little bits of the spine and that's called uninstrumented spinal fusion or spinal surgery rather um so you don't implant anything you're just taking out um things that are causing pain um if you've got really severe pain and you need to cut out a disc um or you need to cut out some of the the actual spine muscle uh bone rather um, or you have had a trauma or you've got cancer that needs to be cut out and it destabilizes the spine in the process or you've got deformity, um, then you'll need something like a scaffold to hold the spine in place um, and encourage the spine to heal itself, which is called spinal fusion. Um, so we make the implants and the associated instruments to, to support that. And uh, uh, coming back, so impressive, important stuff. And when we met, I, I said, well, I suppose when and we were talking, had similar questions in a private conversation, because I never talk about anything other than business. So, so I, I said, <laughs> I imagine when you, when you want to. Fascinating man, a fascinating man, truly. There we go. Uh, when, <laughs> when um, I said, well, maybe in the future, I want to come to Europe. And can you tell me what, tell me what you said then? Because I thought it was very revealing for someone who sort of grows up in this culture of Europe, Europe being quite good for healthcare. Can you just share with what you thought about the European? Well, I mean, for us, if we were to think about that third growth horizon and where we would go internationally first, Europe would not be one of the top 20 places um, for two reasons. One, the <coughs> regulatory barriers there are extraordinarily high and getting higher and higher to the point that it does absolutely um, inhibit innovation and inhibit smaller players entering the market, number one. And number two, paired with that is the remunerations for medical technology there. Um, particularly medical implants are very, very low. So when you ask yourself the question, do I want to do a lot of work and not get remunerated particularly well for it? Clearly the yeah, answer is bureaucracy. Um, so, I mean, all that means um, of Europe is that companies like us, if you believe in the sort of stuff that we do, not necessarily us in general, but companies like us that are innovative and fast moving and agile, um, there would be 20 markets we would enter before we considered going into the European market. So in simple terms, you can sell your products for way more in America or Japan or places like that, which... Uh... Well, even, even before the remuneration, we would consider the regulatory hurdles. Um, mm. So one of the um, huge barriers to entry is is reg and we're very happy because we're on the right side of that barrier and we've done a huge amount of work and invested a huge amount particularly as a manufacturer the the, the hurdle is even higher um, yeah so for us to enter Europe versus America that reg barrier is totally different and then in the US for example you'd get a huge you'd sell a screw in Europe for about um, 250 to 300 euros I mean, in the US, it's developed for about a thousand bucks. Yeah, four times higher prices is quite good if you're selling. Yeah. 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 Totally. So it's as... funny because the business that uh, the, the biggest business I'm involved in is a translation business. And we take full advantage of that problem with Europe. We love Europe. We love the regulation because, and, and, we, and we specialize in medical devices and life sciences exactly yes. for that reason. Because you have to, it's it's so cumbersome. You and and this is one tiny thing. Translation. Imagine how many processes are regulated, right? And even to the extent that if you get the translation wrong, your product can be recalled. You're not going to be able to sell. Absolute disaster for uh, a company. And that and and as you said, massive. And actually, I know it's all put in place for the consumers, 
But but you said something that I thought was really interesting. It actually is a massive barrier for smaller companies, and it's actually not. It's a disincentive, and it's a and it, it, it ultimately it helps the big companies because they have the budgets and the and the and the cash to be able to do all to jump all these hurdles to enter these markets. Whereas like, but so it's it's really so like maybe you know it's very interesting actually because like maybe Europe's not getting the best, the, the latest, the newest stuff because well, that's all going to come in our particular the industry Europe, Europe has just changed its regulatory framework it used to be called MDD and now they're calling it MDR yeah MDR um, yeah and it's MDR has made us rich <laughs> yeah well and and what that's meant is in spine the pool of suppliers I don't know the exact numbers but it's gone from say a thousand down to 200 mm, um, exactly. and you can bet that those 200 left are are the big guys that um yeah. it's really hard to comply it's crazy it's crazy it's crazy mm. yeah it's really crazy and and whilst those regulations have been set with the best intentions what it really does is it limits patient access to care yeah which is sad which is sad definitely so you have let's talk more about your business so you bought a business because like so you're actually doing manufacturing and, and distribution both. That's right. So we design, we're the only Australian spine company that does that full device life cycle mm-hmm. here in Australia of design, manufacture, all of our regulatory work, and then full-scale distribution. Um, we've got a number of competitors that play at each point of the value chain. Um, but what's so cool about this business and the opportunity I really saw in it is that ability to own the full value chain from end to end. Um, and what that means um, for Australian surgeons, who are ultimately our customers, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons, um, is you can say to them, hey, what is a problem that you've got and how can I fix it? And usually, often it's something as simple as, um, oh, I wish, um, I don't know, I wish I had a left-handed screwdriver. Not quite, but something pretty simple. Um, working with one of the big American companies, the local rep would feed that back to their state lead and then their national yeah. lead would fed to Singapore every three months. It'd go to the head office and then in Tennessee, they'd say, oh, yeah, that's that's actually a really good idea. We've got a new product release coming out in two years. We'll make that part of that. Yeah. For us, we try and do it in six weeks. Yeah. Um, and being able to listen to customer feedback and setting that infrastructure to actually be able to do it. So sort of setting agility as a corporate um, capability um, is what differentiates us. And there's a lot of things that Medtronic can do that we can't. But um, to really listen to surgeons and act on their feedback um, with the Australian patient in mind, yeah, um, it's a pretty cool thing. And it's pretty cool. I, to I have compete, to compete. So sorry, go ahead. As, as I say, it's pretty cool to just say, say you compete with Medtronic because for anyone who knows the sector, Medtronic's one of the world's big global companies. And just like if you're going to be better than someone, it's like being better than Toyota in cars. It's just like you know, it's nice. <laughs> it's, it's nice to be better than the world leaders, isn't it? Well, I mean, I would argue that we're better. They have more market share than us in Australia, but um, we're catching up, you know, and they do an amazing job. And there's a lot of stuff that they do for the market that um, we'd never be able to do. But again, there's a lot of stuff that we can do that they will never be able to do. Um, So ultimately, being able to provide that duality of service to surgeons and for the Australian patient, um, there's some sort of patient needs that are better served by that sort of a company. And there's some patient needs that are better served by our sort of a company. So to be able to play our part, um, yeah, it's a pretty nice thing to come home to bed knowing at night that you're providing that service ultimately for people who really need um, really need help. I'm uh, struck by how young you are now. Because, <laughs> no, but because, and I'm saying that only because there's different types of businesses out there. And this is not... I would put this on a more, and so it, it, it so it actually because this is complicated and um, there's a lot. This is a very this is not a simple business. This is a complex. I, I, you know, no, no business is simple. I don't want to you know rank businesses, but like this is not an easy business. Clearly, not an easy business to be involved in. But I have to just ask now about the previous owner or whoever yeah. you bought. Like so. Tell us a little bit about this person and how were you, this sounds like, what was this person's ultimately this role at the time? And like, it, yeah, I would be concerned or worried. Like you obviously, you, you obviously were when you, when you, when you, when you bought it, I mean, like, you know, what, what unknown things are there? Like, like who was doing the, like the, the things that are coming to my head, who was doing the design, who had the customer relationship, you know, these are the, what are the, the absolute key, the key things, um, 
and then was that a hard thing? I mean, or was it just all like he was awesome? He was totally hands off and it was perfectly organized. And so exactly. So what tell us a little bit, because this is like hard. I mean, this is hard yeah, sure. and, and risky, risky stuff, like from an investment point of view, this is where, where you can go south. I mean, like if it doesn't if it's not right, basically, if it's not spotted and analyzed. Yeah, so the story of the inception of Evolution is really the story of Andrew, who was the founder. Um, Andrew is a thoroughly decent guy and someone I consider a close, close friend. Um, his background by way of education is he's a physiotherapist by training, um, spent the early parts of his career as a high-performance physio, working with a number of different sports teams. Um, of most interest to me is he was physio for the Australian rugby team, which is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Um, but he got to a point in his career where he didn't want to be doing that anymore. And like many um, physios or quite a few physios, it's a well-trod path to go into medical device sales. Um, so he was at a point in his career where he did that and he went and worked for Zimmer, which is one of the big yes, companies sure. in, in Spine. And he did that for about five years. He went to another big American company for about another five years and got to a point in his medical device career where he did recognize that there was this great gap in the market for an Australian player who could really um, respond to and listen to surgeons and create things based on the feedback that was here. Um, and his idea was, oh, I'm just going to, um, I've got a couple of very strong surgeon relationships. I'm going to take um, one or two surgeons that I particularly like working with and create just one or two products. And if I can sell one or two products once or twice a week, I can probably make as much money as I make now as a top salesperson. Um, and I can escape the bureaucracy of being at a big company and, and sort of just have a nice little life for myself. Unfortunately for him, fortunately for me, he became a bit of a victim of his own success and did such a marvelous job setting up this company that it wasn't just one or two surgeons. There were scores of surgeons who wanted to work with a business like that. And they said, oh, you've done such a good job with these one or two products. We want to help provide you feedback and tell you what we've really been wanting in this market for a full product or just about a full product suite um, of every spinal fusion device you could want. Um, and why I say he became a victim of his own success, and I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this, is Andrew is magnificent at many things. He's sensational in operating theatres. Um, has amazing surgeon relationships, can design products and is hands-on and is excellent at all that sort of thing. Um, one of the things he said to me once was, I'm probably the world, world's worst managing director. And the company did get to a point with so many different moving plates um, that for him to get to that second growth horizon, for example, um, which required a certain transformation of the business and setting a different kind of infrastructure that um, he realized he probably wasn't the person to take it there. Um, and had been running, it's funny you should say he was super hands-off because he was quite the opposite. He was super hands-on and sort of led every single aspect of the business. And he got to a point where he wanted to bring in someone um, to take it to that next step. And that's why he ultimately um, went to market and and tried to find someone. Is he, still, is he still involved in the business? He's still involved in the business. Um, so he stayed on... Um, technically as a consultant, but he does far okay. more for the business than, than your ordinary earn out consultant would. But is he, so, um, sorry, still involved? Is he, and again, share or not share, but uh, like, I'm just kind of curious and like, did he, re, did he mean, to, did he retain an ownership stake in, in, in the business as well? So is he like a minority shareholder? I won't, I won't sort of go into those sort of details, okay. but um, what my coming into the business and what the sort of new capital coming into the business has allowed him to do is really focus on the bits that he does best and enjoys most, which is being in the operating theaters with surgeons and helping them use the gear, designing yeah, awesome. new products, um, and at the same time, not have to deal with sort of HR and people and regulatory stuff. So when I took over the business, um, we were a pseudo full um, device lifecycle, but what we didn't have was a legal manufacturing license. So we designed the products with surgeons and then outsourced to a legal manufacturer, the actual legal manufacturing, and then bring it back in and do the distribution. Um, and since I've been in the business, we have got our legal manufacturing license, which is a pretty big deal for anyone who knows what that means in medical devices. Um, and that does allow us to truly do that full 
um, full service in-house, um, but that's something with full credit to him that um, probably wouldn't have been achievable um, in the way the business used to run before. Yeah, I mean, the reason I was asking about his ownership and stuff like that was from the perspective of like, he seemed like a really important person to have on to keep to keep to keep sort of involved in the business. So like, you know, if it, and I do a lot of M&A myself, so I, I would be like, I'm like, I'm looking to like keep that person basically engaged. So who does so like, again, sort of the hard parts of the business, like who does the design? Like, is he the design? Like you said design, like product design. The, who does design of who does the design actually is that so in the old world in the old world everything was andrew um since and and that's clearly an unsustainable business model right um so now we've got a team of engineers um we work hand in glove with um many of the top spine surgeons in australia as consultants um so whenever we do a new product we set up and also clients well, sure, sure. And that's absolutely part of it, which is if you yeah. design something exactly the way that yeah. you want it, exactly. Don't buy it. <laughs> you're going to use it when it's clinically appropriate. Um, and whilst an Australian person is no different to an American person, biologically, there are um, requirements and sort of preferences that an Australian surgeon would have that it commercially doesn't make sense for a big American company with a global focus to, to do sort of niche right. for Australia. Um, a lot of that is to do with product sizing, and it's sort of just a historical thing that in Australia, for example, in a certain surgery, we prefer larger implants or different shaped implants. Um, and that's something that we absolutely cater to because we've said to our surgeons, hey, what is it that will set us apart? And they've said, oh, I've always wanted um, an A-lift cage in this particular size, and, and we can go and do that. So, okay, so you've got, that's great. You set up the team of design. Now, I have to ask a little bit about the manufacturing because I don't know how, uh, if you, what kind of materials you're using or how it, the actual manufacturing process looks. I was in a, uh, one of our clients, uh, it's called Edwards Life Science. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them. They do oh, part, yes, I know. Uh, related, well. um, yeah. Uh, it, it implants and, uh, and pacemakers and, and this kind of stuff. And, you know, they, I, so I was on a tour and I saw the way they manufactured. It was like absolutely crazy. Like the, the level of sterility. Now, I don't know if you're using any, na- what kind of materials you're they're actually using to create this? But I mean, obviously, you must have issues. Some issues of again, I'm not a medical person, so I don't know if there's any with the spine. If there's any issues of rejection or having any kind of like, um, they're using like bovine or what for the layman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and then and then if you're doing that, then you have some crazy like is is the manufacturing like does it look like that or is it a different kind of like because that sounds that seems extremely complicated and and difficult to me. Yeah. I understand the question. So essentially for us, like any orthopedic company, there's two types of medical devices that we make. There's implants and instruments, to put it very broadly. So an right. implant, the simplest level would be a screw and an instrument would be a screwdriver. Um, okay. Generally, um, and I use that term, generally a lot of the instruments are made of stainless steel and they are low risk or considered low risk um, Devices. That's not to say we don't have very strict quality assurance and all those sort of things. Um, but in medical devices, there's certain risk categories um, and something which is implanted into the body needs to be what's called biocompatible, which is the point right. we're making about rejection. Um, so for us, the majority of our implants are made from either titanium or peak, um, which is a type of plastic. Um, okay. So a type of metal alloy or a type of plastic um, composite. And, and those are all tested to the highest levels of biocompatibility and sterility and all those sort of things. Um, and then we do have some synthetic biologic um, devices in our portfolio as well. We don't manufacture them. That's something that we actually okay. import and distribute from a French company. Okay. Um, but, but do you need to, when you're manufacturing, let's probably talk about the stuff that you're manufacturing. Are there some standards? I mean, there has to be, for sure, the, at least sterility. I mean, there has to be some... It, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is manufacturing that screw versus a regular screw, it has to be a different process. Yeah, it's right? very different. <laughs> um, and it's far more costly, not only yeah. to produce the widget itself, but also the governance and oversight and quality assurance, um, which is required. Um, and that's why to become a medical device manufacturer, um, there is such a strict level um, of compliance that's needed. So um, there's a 
piece of paper from the ISO standards, which I'm sure um, anyone who knows quality assurance well um, knows about. But um, the one for medical device manufacturing is called the ISO 13485. And that's a set of rules for how we have to run our company and the sort of records we have to keep and the sort of standards that we need to adhere to. And then for each individual widget, um, there's also a set of rules for how that needs to be produced and adhered to. And um, every time we do a product release, so that means going off the manufacturing floor and onto the warehouse, which is um, then free for the operations team to take and use. Um, there's a whole checklist of things that needs to be checked off to make sure that it's good for release. Um, and sometimes we reject things. You know, if it hasn't, if it hasn't sort of met all yeah. those standards, then it gets rejected. Mm. Yeah, so I'm just wondering. Fortunately, it's never got to the point where we've implanted something that we then realize after the fact. Um, <laughs> we got to get wrong. it back. We have to do a recall. So yeah. touch wood. Um, we haven't had to do a recall, but um, all those processes are there. If we ever had to do a recall, we'd know how to do it um, within 24 hours, which is, again, the standard of how we how we do it. Mm. And for anyone listening, thinking about, I want to be an entrepreneur, it, it, you perhaps begin to understand that, you know, your dreams of being on the front page of Time magazine involves getting ownership of processes, you know, let's say getting ownership of boring bureaucratic processes, which you thought were only, and you're a private sector business, private sector entrepreneur but nonetheless you know dealing yeah with and this is all stuff that deep, deep. i didn't i didn't even know this stuff existed two years ago right so you need to learn fast mm. and talking about things you need to learn you mentioned that and your your founder um wasn't really andrew great. andrew wasn't great at all the management processes and i was wondering did you in your mba and elsewhere actually have experience of managing people because managing people is often quite different from what you people expect and was it when you started having to manage people it's by far from easy to come in as an outside ceo and just like snap your fingers and everyone accepts you so can you share a few reflections on whether yeah, i mean i would first of all say that i i think andrew was magnificent at managing people but he had his own style and it certainly had a cap of how far it could go mm -hmm. um uh, had I had experience of managing people? Yes, but in small consulting teams um, of people who looked and thought and smelled <laughs> like me, um, not in a multidisciplinary um, organization where you've got finance people, you've got reg people, you've got engineers, you've got sales people, you've got warehouse people, you've got ops people and everyone is different and everyone wants something different and everyone knows that you're the guy that can do it for them. Um, so um, it's, it's one thing to manage a high performance um, consulting team of people um, and a very different thing to go into a business where you're, I'd never managed managers before. That's something I'd never done before and is a very, it's, it's a learning point. It's a learning point of how do you lead people who are leading people and how do you sort of empower them, get what you want, but also let them do your bidding for you. Um, so that was a real learning point for me. Yeah, there's an old joke um, from Manager Tools, which is my favorite management podcast, where they say that uh, the difference between a manager and a director is a director manages managers and manager manages people, implying that a director isn't a person <laughs> under, underneath the underneath the surface. But and and if you wanted to share some you know important lesson that because we we try to educate people, and I think your story is amazing. There's a lot to learn already. But about managing diverse people, what if you're going to give one piece of advice to our listeners as what you think is most important now, having been through the experience, what would you share? I mean, it's interesting that before you made a point about making yourself vulnerable, because I think that is really important because someone will look at me and say, wow, you're quite a young guy. Like, what do you know? And often the answer is not a lot, but I'm pretty good at working things out as I go. Um, and there isn't a day in this business where I don't learn something or work something out as I go. So I think um, when you go into a business where a lot of people are a lot older than you, um, and they've certainly been doing what they're doing a lot longer than I have. Um, just to say, yeah, sometimes I don't know and you know better. And um, to portray that vulnerability and say, I'm here to work with you, not to work against you. And I'm here to make your life easier and not harder. And whilst on paper, you work for me, actually, I'm here to make your life better and make this place a cooler, better, more exciting place to work. Mm. Um, so I think if that's at the heart of it, 
then getting to know each of the different people in each of the different teams is really important. What motivates them, what drives them, what excites them, what is an effective way to tell them off or provide feedback versus an ineffective way to do that. And everybody is different. Um, fortunately, some of the consulting stuff is actually super valuable for that. And we get trained on that in that career, um, but sort of being very personable and um, building those relationships and um, yeah, it's, it's just working out what will keep people happy. And um, that's one of the big learnings is everyone um, when you're an employee, think, oh, I work for the boss and the, the boss man. But when you are an employer, um, one of the things I think about most is keeping people happy and making sure that they're motivated and they're going to do a good job. And ultimately, they're not going to quit their job. Um, can, you share, so, can you share how many people work in the company? So it was about eight when I took it over and we're about 30 now. Oh, wow. And I would like, and yeah, you're asking around the question I wanted to ask, which was, and I wouldn't say anything, actually, I wouldn't say like, whatever, the young part, I don't think that actually matters that much. I, I do think the, all of a sudden being jumped into, dumped into something like very deep water, what I would perceive to be very deep water. Cause like, okay, the man, and I, the excellent question by Richard, like the management, actually, usually that's the thing that's as you said, that maybe the biggest struggle or the hardest thing to sort of get used to is doing the managing. And you said that like, you deal with all these people that have been doing it forever and you come in and you're new and you're young. But so that's one thing and you address that very well. But what about like, just, this is, a, I don't know this business. Like, I know you said you did healthcare, whatever, consulting and stuff like that. But I can't imagine that like all you were prepared for by the consulting was I I get to learn stuff I don't know very well fast, I guess. <laughs> maybe that's the, but, but like, you must be still learning about the bit like the business, right? I mean, it's because it's it, it's a it's complicated. I mean, when we just addressed all these sides, of it, how do you deal with that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I just approach it with a very open mind and um, know that I don't know everything. Um, there's a common adage in the entrepreneurship through acquisition world that if you can find a business where you're not changing the racehorse, you're just swapping out the jockey, then that's a pretty good thing. Okay. Um, and whilst this business one of the things that excited me most about this business was it had so much room for improvement and opportunity for growth and change and transformation. It was also one that if I came in on day one and did nothing for three months was going to be okay. Exactly. So essentially that's what I did um, is I did come into the business um, and I'm going to learn and I'm not going to change things because chances are if I come in and I think I'm super clever and I try and change something, I can do a hell of a lot more harm. Absolutely. So how did you do that? Like, I, like there's way different ways. Of, did, did you uh, manage them by walking around? Did you actually try to do every job? Did you like what? How did you educate yourself? Um, I decided to be quite subtle about it. So um, met a lot of the met some of the customers early, um, but made a point of sort of not going and putting myself in front of the customers until I knew how to hold yes. a conversation. A <laughs> um, good good move. Really. Um, and similar sort of thing with staff and started with the areas that I was strong. So understood operations and finance yeah. pretty well. Um, so went to work understanding that. Um, made it my mission to understand um, anatomy as quickly as I could. Exactly. Um, and, and the spine and sort of just ticked away at um, working out. So you come in and you don't know what your unknowns are. And then very quickly you need to work out what are my unknowns. And then once you know what your known unknowns are, you work on making your known unknowns no, <laughs> um, I think that was sort of my first six months and it had always been my intent to try and do nothing for sort of six months. Um, and at about that point is when in Australia, so we were quite late to catch COVID relative to the rest of the world. So we were sort of open and doing our own things, albeit with closed um, international borders. But when the rest of the world was in lockdown, we were out um, partying on the beach. Um, but then it eventually did catch up with us. And we went into lockdown right about the time that I had always um, planned to sort of shift the gear on moving to that second growth horizon. So that put that on the back burners. And we had three or four pretty bad months as COVID took hold on Australia. And particularly elective surgeries got cancelled. Yes. Um, because all of our beds were being utilised for COVID patients. Yeah. Um, so we almost had to put the business into shutdown mode. Um, That's crazy. And, and, and that was a great stress test for the business because 
every single month we still remain profitable, um, not to the level that we'd want. And it's okay sometimes to have an unprofitable month, but um, we manage through change and control to remain just profitable every single month. Um, but what that meant afterwards, the, there was a backlog of patients needing surgery. Um, and at that point, we um, well, well, throughout that, um, I used the downtime to chat with another um, like-minded business up in Queensland, or rather two businesses up there that ultimately we ended up merging with. Um, and we brought them together. So we came out of this sort of COVID lockdown as a merged entity and bringing those two companies together. Basically, you acquired, you bought, I mean, you bought... Merged so we've done fact. two sort of two in integrations of um, smaller companies up in Queensland, and we're looking at a couple of others. Um, nice. Always, always, we've looked at a couple that we've walked away from. Um, but yeah, we, 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 our growth story has been both organic and inorganic, and probably will continue to be um, as we enter the different regions um, of the and country. Your, and your shareholders, the people who back you with capital, they've got enough money to back you if you need more more capital to buy additional. If you need to do more acquisitions, you, you don't have to go to a different type of finance uh, to do a big. Well, oh, we I, I... haven't to date. We haven't to date. Um, and um, managing the balance sheet across both debt and equity has been um, a balancing act and something that we continue to do, I think, very well. Um, we've recently been through um, a fairly serious conversation with a new large equity backer that I think we've decided not to proceed with for now because we're in such a healthy state and we've got so many great growth um, opportunities that selling equity at this point probably doesn't make sense. Um, and we are able to fund um, our enormous growth through both cash flow and a little bit of debt raising, which is, of course, well, the I, cheapest I, way to, to grow. And I, when we met face to face you shared your EBITDA number I was quite jealous of your EBIT number are you are you allowed to share that online with our audience no I won't do that I, okay. I won't do that in this forum okay, okay so I have a question though uh, since we're talking about the investors because I was actually very interested in that so what's the what do you have a mandate like is there what's there like I don't know what kind of investors these are but are like is there like a window like are you supposed and again again maybe you can't share this but like this this seems like it's kind of sort of more typical kind of stuff like yeah. is there an exit a framework for them for them to exit their investment or are they going to be law hold you know buy and hold i mean what or are they private uh, like are they just private individual like what's the setup so there? how does that it's yeah. it's of public record who our equity investors are and it's a combination of superannuation funds which in australia is like a pension fund okay. um a couple of institutional investors and a couple of high net worth individuals um okay. and these are all people who are passionate to build another great Australian medical device company of which there are not many. So um, around the world, a lot of people have probably heard of Cochlear, which is the ear yeah. company. Um, there's a couple of others, but as a nation, we are underrepresented in terms of the talent, the opportunity, the everything that we've got here for making medical device companies. So um, everyone who we have on our cap table is passionate above anything else um, for three things. One, and far above anything else, is helping patients. Um, second is building another great Australian medical device company. And the third is obviously growing the profit and getting a return on investment. Um, so that's what we're sort of all about. We've always had um, on the horizon the opportunity that this is an IPOable company. That's the answer to the question. <laughs> and and that, that's always been on the horizon. Yeah. But it's the more we think about it, it's probably something that we won't do because there's so many advantages to this organization of being private and nimble. Right. And we can we can be a very large private company yeah. for a long, long time. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But, but at some point, we, so it's a buy and hold for them. They're like buy and hold. There's no, they're not pressure. There's no pressure. And that's very there's no pressure. For you. Um, if an amazing opportunity came along and yeah. um, we made such a not nuisance of ourselves that Johnson & Johnson said, oh, we've just got to yeah. get rid of these guys and we love their technology yeah. and we're going to integrate yeah. it and continue to do what we do. Um, we, we're all commercial guys. But for now, right. um, I'm a fairly young guy. Um, yeah. I've got plenty of um, runway ahead of me and um, yeah, we're all just passionate to grow and build this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know that the Australian well, stock exchange is, I mean, I think it's a pretty good place actually to IPO uh, I, I, from what I've, I, I'm not a huge expert on it, but I think it's not su like super expensive compared to some of the others. And then it's a very favorable stock exchange for a yeah. new cap company. So if exactly. we were to do it, we absolutely smaller. would do it on the ASX, not the NASDAQ. 
which would yeah, be the only exactly. other one we'd consider. Exactly, um, exactly. There's a couple of sort of boxes that you want to tick um, <clears throat> for the sort of mid-cap institutional investors to take you seriously on that stock exchange. Yeah. And we've well and truly cleared all of those. Um, obviously, yeah. it's not the time to be doing it. And even if it was the time to sure. be doing it, we wouldn't do it. But um, yeah, the, the, the fact that that's always an option on the table for us, unless things go backwards, um, is right. a pretty comfortable place to be in. Mm. Awesome. I'm I'm conscious of time, and you know I think it's been a really interesting journey, and I really appreciate all the information and stories you've shared. Is there anything we haven't asked that you think is important that you think our listeners ought to know about entrepreneurship or you or the business that are just sort of glaringly obvious? Why didn't they ask me about this? Because it's important, and people people ought to know. Uh, I don't think anything glaringly obvious. I think if there's a listener out there that's considering. Um, doing something, my advice would be just go and do it, take a risk. Um, and if it all falls to pieces, generally you're going to be okay. Um, but the opportunity is so exciting. And um, if it comes together, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And I'm still very early in my journey, but so far, if there's someone that's considering leaving the corporate world and going into entrepreneurship as I did, um, my overwhelming advice would be give it a shot. Can you just give somebody some advice on the buy? Um, what, what do you call the the way you did it? I can't remember the entrepreneurship the, through acquisition. Entrepreneurship. Can, can you let's talk? Just give somebody the like the elevator pitch of how do they do that? Like somebody's listening to this and they're and they're they're exactly like you were, or whatever. Or a couple they years ago. Yeah, and that and um, like go, this interesting. How do I do this? How do I do this? Go to the Harvard website and look up entrepreneurship through acquisition, um, or search funds. Um, Harvard and Stanford and a few other places have so many resources on it. Um, the one thing I would say about the community of people who are going through search, as it's often called, um, or have gone through it, is everyone is hugely receptive. So when I was considering going into it, I made about 50 phone calls um, to people who had done it, um, people who had failed at doing it, people who had gone through it and were now CEOs. And there's a little bit of a, what's it called, pass it forward mentality, which is everyone makes those 50 phone calls so then on the other side everyone expects to receive 50 phone calls and if there's anyone out there that wants to speak to me i'm on linkedin i'm very contactable and i'm happy to speak to anyone um as well as i would reckon 90 percent of the people that you reach out to in this community would take a phone call and make time to have a chat that's awesome good well i think that's uh a good note to end on other than maybe one thing is there anything bad i mean it all sounds so wonderful usually if something's too good to be true it sometimes is i mean i don't want to end on a low point but was there anything that was, <laughs> was there anything that i will say that there are just about as many bad days as good days like it's really hard um and often when i was taking these phone calls from people who were considering doing this for my first 18 months in the business um, I generally paint a pretty negative picture because that first 18 months, it was far from a turnaround, but it was a transformation of the business. Um, it was really, really hard. And I was rolling up my sleeves and this was during our um, revenue downturn because of um, what was happening with COVID. Um, it's, it's a hard job and it's a lonely job. And I'm only now at the point where I'm getting out of bed and I'm actually loving doing what I'm doing. And it's really exciting. But if we'd been doing this podcast 12 months ago, You'd be, seeing a very different, you'd be seeing a very different Jack. So, um, yeah, I think, Richard, you're absolutely right to point out that don't have the illusion that it's all peachy and great times. It's a lot of hard work and it's very emotionally taxing. Um, compared to consulting, I'm working far less hours. Like I do 16-hour days pretty regularly. Like that was the norm, whereas I, I do sort of eight or 10-hour days now at the office, but I never switch off. Um after two years in the business, I just went on my um, wedding and honeymoon and it was an amazing um, nearly month out of the office, but I was on emails every morning at four or 5 a.m. Um, keeping, keeping things going. Um, so um, you never switch off, it's pretty hard, but if there are as many good days as there are bad days, the good days are far more rewarding than the bad are negative. Mm. And that's the positive note that you wanted to end on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, ex exactly, exactly. Well, I'm going to Kimon, do you want to do the do the wrap as usual? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just super jack, super impressed. Um, I, I think you, I think it sounds 
And I'm glad that you had this last little bit here because it sounds a lot easier than it is. And we all know that it's not, not nothing is easy and everybody can have a smile and be successful, but there's a grind that's going on behind to get there. I think you did an amazing, I, I, it strikes me, and this is only an hour of us like getting to know each other and talking, but like you've chosen incredibly well. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 the, the company that you chose, so like I'm, I'm sort of now speaking to those people that are like excited by this, uh, hearing what Jack has done, that, uh, you know, there's a, that, that choosing the right target, whatever company that you can lead is like the probably the key, <laughs> the most important part of the, the, the whole thing. But uh, yeah, anyway, listen, super, you're like a super impressive guy and it's been great to hear your story. So, you know, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, yeah, it was really good. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to chat.